0: it's tech biter worldwide i'm bill Blynn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes that's because we leave out the sports most of the jingles the weather and the commercials podcast number 309 for the week of september 9th 2012 this week you can't have too much backup Adobe has several updates you should consider downloading. And in short circuits, Facebook stock takes an upward turn as the Instagram acquisition finalizes. Microsoft won't miss the cloud. Oracle owes Google $1 million. And Amazon is fired up and ready to go. I title this first section, You Can't Have Too Much Backup. And you can't. There are lots of online backup services, and I strongly recommend using one of them at least. Carbonite is my favorite, but I really don't like to lose important files such as photographs, clients' files, and tax records. A disk failure, just like a collision at sea, can ruin your whole day. So, in addition to Carbonite, I maintain a local hot backup and a nearby full system backup. Carbonite makes the process easy. The servers in Boston stick a straw into my computer, figuratively of course, and suck the data off to a safe place whenever the computer is turned on. Currently Carbonite is storing nearly 400,000 of my files, 500 gigabytes, and at the time I prepared this report it was continuing to back up 3,000 new files. Now that's great. But I don't even want to think about how long it would take to restore all those files. And not every file is backed up to Carbonite. I specifically exclude some files that I know aren't really essential. The local hot backup resides on two external USB drives, and I use GoodSync to copy new and changed files to those drives. Because the drives sit right beside the computer, I can't count them as true backup devices, but they are handy when I need to recover a previous version of a file, or if the main system has a problem and I have to switch over to the notebook computer. I've had to do that only once, but it was really handy when I had to do it. And then the nearby backups, well, they're stored at my office. One contains files that are on my hot backups, and another contains an image file of the first physical drive which actually contains logical drives C and F. The C drive is my Windows boot device, and having an image of that drive rather than a file backup should make it possible to restore the computer, if I ever need to. Until recently, I've used Norton Ghost for the nearby backups, but recently I ran across a British product called Macrium Reflect. There's a free version, one that's primarily designed for home users, another for business users, and still another for enterprise use. Although the free version omits some important usability features, it offers everything you need to secure your data. The free version does omit some key features, differential and incremental backups, for example. These are available in the paid versions. Macrium allows you to create an XML definition file so that you can repeat any backup at any time, but if you want to repeat a backup that took seven hours, The repeated backup will take 7 hours. This alone might be worth paying for either the standard or pro version because they allow you to create both differential and incremental backups. Now here's the difference between the two. Differential. Each new backup includes all the files that have been created or modified since the last full backup. Restoring requires only that you use the full backup and the most recent differential backup, but. This process consumes considerably more disk space. Incremental backups. Each new backup includes only the files that have been created or modified since the last full backup or the last incremental backup, whichever was later. This process consumes a good bit less disk space, but restoring requires that you reload the last full backup and all incremental backups. Maybe Norton Ghost has met its match because even the free version of Macrium Reflect can clone a system drive. This is particularly useful when you need to upgrade the computer's hard drive or when you buy a new computer and you just want to move everything to the new machine. Let's take a look at Macrium Reflect in action. My usual process with a new application is to ignore the instructions, install the thing and see how much damage I can cause. I do it this way because that's the way most users install software, but I have to admit I was impressed to find it was really easy to use. I wanted to create an image of the boot drive, drive C, and creating an image file requires imaging the entire physical drive. Well, in my case, the physical drive that contains logical drive C also contains drive F, which is primarily used for music. So I selected the first physical drive and deselected all of the other drives on the computer in the setup panel. Then Macrium Reflect wanted to know where it should put the image file. I selected drive H. That's a Western Digital USB drive that I store at the office. This all seemed way too easy, but I clicked next anyway. Macrium Reflect said it would use drive H for the backup, and that there were two operations to perform, one for drive C, and one for drive F. At the bottom of the screen, there was a button for advanced options. In the advanced options, I had the opportunity to modify several features, but they all seemed to have a reasonable settings. so after looking at them, I just proceeded to the next step. That screen showed the progress of the various operations. In this case, the full image backup required several hours, even with a data transfer rate higher than 280 megabytes per second. With the free version, creating a weekly backup image would always consume several hours. Even so, if you want to stick with the free version and you store the backup drive in the office or some other remote location, what's wrong with bringing the backup drive home one night each week, starting the backup when you go to bed, and then taking the drive back to the office in the morning? but I wanted to take a look at Macrium Pro. For drives that are so large that a full backup takes several hours, purchasing one of the paid versions makes a lot of sense. Macrium provided a review copy for my testing, and when I ran an incremental backup after installing several new applications, that process consumed considerably less time, specifically 19 minutes and 12 seconds compared to approximately 6 hours. I really wouldn't want to run a 6-hour process every week, but a 20-minute process? That's barely noticeable, particularly when it can run in the background with only minimal effect on system performance. Each incremental backup is stored as a separate file. The full backup was 507 gigabytes. The incremental backup, new and changed files since the last full backup, just 3 gigabytes. I've learned that it's possible to discern a fair amount about a software publisher's capabilities and attention to detail by watching what happens during the download and installation process. The installer asked for the installation key Macrium had provided. When I filled that in, it recommended downloading the 64-bit version, offered the option of running the installation immediately after download, and identified me as the license holder. Next, as I expected, the installer noticed that I already had the free version installed and said that it would upgrade that to Macrium Pro. With the installation complete, I realized that I had neglected to create a recovery disk with the free version, so that was my first order of business. And here you have two options. You can install what is called the Windows PE 3.1 version or a Linux version. The Windows PE 3.1, PE standing for Pre-Installation Environment, uses a minimal Windows 32 operating system with limited services. It's used to prepare a computer for Windows installation, to copy disk images from a network file server, and to initiate Windows setup. Because this option allows restoration of a disk image to any drive, even if the drive isn't the same size as the original, it's the option most users should choose. Although the Linux version is more compact than the Windows PE version, it allows restoration of an image only to identical hardware. If a disk drive fails, you would need to replace it with a drive that's exactly the same as the original, and with the constant advances in disk technology, that could be difficult. When I created the original image backup with a free version of Macrium, the process created an XML file. The XML file describes the backup. Now, how might I create either an incremental or differential backup now that I have the professional version? There's no option on the menu to do that, nothing that addresses anything other than full backups. So, I right-clicked the XML file that the free version had created, a Run Now menu item in the Context menu indicated that sub-items were present, and that's where I found the option to rerun the full image backup, run it as an incremental backup, or run it as a differential backup. Easy. But then, I rebooted the computer, and suddenly, there was a boot menu. The options actually seemed a bit ominous. One, Windows 7 Ultimate Recovered, or two, Macrium Reflect System Recovery. As it turns out, this is simply Macrium Reflect's way of protecting users. I had already created a recovery disk, but Macrium had also installed the Windows pre-installation environment and that would make it possible to perform a system recovery even without a boot disk. Of course, this would work only if the disk drive was still fully functional and that the failure had been caused by malware or an application. If the disk drive has physical damage that prevents it from booting, the boot menu would never appear. I've decided to retain that boot menu, but if it makes you uneasy or confuses other users of the computer, you can turn it off by selecting Add Recovery Boot Menu Options from the Other Tasks menu, and then simply selecting No Menu. The bottom line for MacRAM Reflect? Five cats. MacRAM Reflect upstages the competition. As I said in the headline, you can't have too much backup and Macrium Reflect at $45 for the standard version or about $60 for the professional version is a great choice. If you have more than one computer in your home or office, Macrium offers a four-system package, about $90 and $120, respectively. Although you can back up to optical disks, external USB drives are overall less expensive, far faster, and a lot more convenient. For more information, visit the Macrium website. You'll find a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Seems to be a lot of news from Adobe these past few weeks. This week, Adobe has announced a release candidate update for several applications, and you probably should download these if you're using those particular applications. The most significant update is the release candidate for Lightroom 4.2. But Adobe also has updates for Camera Raw and the DNG converter. Both of those are version 7.2. The Lightroom update fixes some bugs that persisted in version 4.1, and the Camera Raw DNG converter applications add support for some new cameras in addition to squishing some bugs. Adobe explains it this way, Lightroom 4.2 is now available as a release candidate on Adobe Labs. The release candidate label indicates that this update is well tested, but would benefit from some additional community testing before it is distributed automatically to all of our customers. The final release of Lightroom 4.2 might have additional corrections or additional camera support. If you download the release candidate, it will update the current installed version of Lightroom, and when the final code is released, it will update either the previous version of Lightroom or the release candidate, whichever is installed. Adobe says the release candidate fixes several version 4.1 bugs. For example, folder stacks with virtual copies can become unstacked if moved to another folder. That's been fixed. Stacked photos are hidden in both the grid view and film strip. This occurs when photos become unstacked as a result of enabling auto-stacking. Errors encountered when publishing videos to Facebook through the Facebook publish service have been fixed. Problems that occur when trying to enter the web module from the library have been fixed. And a list of probably a dozen or so other bugs that have been squished. Check out the list on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Support is also provided for several new cameras from Canon, Fuji, Panasonic, Pentax, and Sony. And the Lightroom 4.2 release candidate supports the album's functionality in the recently released Adobe Revel 1.5. You can download the Lightroom update from Adobe Labs. Keep in mind this is a release candidate, but it seems to work quite well. You'll find a link to the release candidate on the TechBiter worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. Adobe Camera Raw 7.2 and the DNG Converter 7.2 release candidates are also available from Adobe Labs. These releases include bug fixes, new camera support, and new lens profiles. Camera Raw 7.2 release candidate includes tools to recover image sensor data typically lost when shooting in a camera crop mode. It's now possible to view the entire recorded image instead of just the crop mode image that was selected in the camera. This feature does not work with Nikon or Panasonic cameras, as cameras from these vendors crop the raw data to the chosen aspect ratio, and they do that in the camera, so if the data is not there, there's no way to recover it. But other cameras that just mark the cropped area have the data so you can recover it. The update provides support for a whole boatload of new cameras, and you'll find that list on the TechBiter Worldwide website, along with a list of fixed bugs and a short list of bugs that remain to be fixed in the next version. Also from Adobe, there's an update to Photoshop Touch. That's an application for iPad and Android tablets. This is the update to version 1.3. Photoshop Touch places basic Photoshop features on tablets and gives users the ability to create layered images, make edits to the images, and apply certain effects. Layered images is particularly notable because most competing products offer only a single layer image. The resulting images can be shared through Facebook or automatically synced through the Adobe Creative Cloud, and once on Adobe Creative Cloud, they can then be refined in Photoshop CS6 on your home machine. Adobe Steven Nielsen says that Photoshop Touch can now work with print resolution images up to 12 megapixels and with up to 16 layers. Note that the application's default resolution, though, is 4.2 megapixels and 10 layers. That can be increased in preferences. The upgrade is free to current users, or 10 bucks if you're buying it as a new application. It's available in the Apple Apps Store and on Google Play. In short circuits, like a loaf of bread dough in a warm room, Facebook stock has finally begun to rise, slowly. It was up about 5% this week after the huge drop immediately after Facebook's IPO. One reason for the increase is the company's reassuring words to investors to let them know that some of the major stockholders will hold on to their shares, even though they could now sell them, and that Facebook will buy back nearly $2 billion worth of shares. CEO Mark Zuckerberg announced that he has no plans to sell shares other than those needed to take care of substantial tax obligations. The statement was made in a filing with the Securities and Exchange Commission. Additionally, board members Mark Andreessen and Donald Graham say they are on board for the long term. Facebook will spend nearly $2 billion to buy back 101 million shares from early employees and also made certain other changes that will make about 234 million shares of stock available for sale around the end of October instead of the middle of November, but the overall total number of insider shares available for sale will be reduced by about a third. When the 1st lockup period expired in August, Facebook's share price continued to fall, The value dropped 53% from the IPO in May. But this week, the Facebook acquisition of Instagram finally concluded. The Federal Trade Commission began investigating the acquisition in April, finally approved the deal in August. Instagram attempted to calm worried users by stating on its blog that the photo app will be changing little, if at all. The Instagram app and its features will stay the same one you know and love and will keep working together to build a better Instagram for everyone, said the blog. Initially, the cash and stock deal would have been worth $1 billion to Instagram, but by the time the deal closed, Facebook's falling stock prices reduced the valuation to a paltry $715 million. Facebook's Vice President of Engineering, Mike Schroepfer, wrote on the Facebook blog, Instagram will continue to serve its community and will help Instagram continue to grow by using Facebook's strong engineering team and infrastructure. In other words, Facebook has no plans to consume the technology and then discontinue Instagram as a separate service. In the 1990s, Microsoft largely wrote off networking and the world's largest network, the Internet. The company was late to acknowledge that people might actually want to network their home computers and was very late to the market with a badly flawed browser that even now, 17 years after IE version 1, is still and also ran in terms of technology, but nonetheless the market leader among users. Later this year, Windows 8 will be released and it is built to work seamlessly with cloud-based applications and cloud-based storage. The new server version of Windows, Windows Server 2012, will work as servers always have down here on the ground in computer rooms, but it will also be able to connect with about 200 remote services that are part of Microsoft's Azure system. Clearly, Microsoft has realized both the potential and and the threat presented by housing software and applications on the Internet Developers see a future where desktop computers with installed applications will be much less important than they are today. Microsoft already has big server-based offerings such as SharePoint and Exchange. Both of these are already big money makers for Microsoft, but the company sees change coming. Change that will mean lower sales of applications such as the Office Suite sold on optical disks and installed on individual computers. Microsoft, along with other large software companies such as Adobe, are betting on the software-as-a-service business model. Adobe already offers Creative Suite CS6 as a service, about $20 to $50 per month, depending on which applications you need, and Microsoft's Office 2013, now available as a consumer preview, stores documents online by default. The term, in the cloud. Still seems every bit as silly as desktop publishing did in the 1980s. After all, I never published a desktop. But the trend is clear. Stand back. The future is knocking. To me, and probably to you, one million dollars is nothing to sneeze at. Even the bare-naked ladies, none of whom are either naked or ladies, sang about that sum of money. If you're old enough, you might remember a TV show in which the fictitious John Beresford Tipton Jr. had Michael Anthony hand people checks for one million dollars. In 1955, when the show first went on the air, that was a lot of money. But today, to companies such as Oracle and Google, it's a rounding error in the bookkeeping system. If either company dropped a million dollars, it wouldn't even bother to lean over and pick it up. Hey, the Supreme Court says corporations are people, so I don't feel at all odd about thinking about a company bending over to pick up a million dollars. But, to wander back on track, the point of this rambling account is that Oracle will have to pay one million dollars worth of court costs for Google. U.S. Judge William Alsup made the ruling this week. Oracle has to reimburse what Google paid a court-appointed expert during the intellectual property suit over Google's Android software. Alsup, however, refused to order Oracle to scrape up a little more pocket lint and pay Google an extra $3 million for discovery fees. Oracle is appealing the ruling, and that will probably cost many times the court-ordered judgment. Such is the U.S. legal system. Well, Amazon's all fired up and ready to go. The new Kindle Fire has a larger screen, although not as large as an iPad. Faster Wi-Fi, two connections are better than one, and a price tag that's considerably lower than Apple's iPad. Apple is clearly the market leader. Amazon is hoping to change that. The original Fire had a 7-inch screen. The new screens are a little over 8.5 inches, measured diagonally, of course. This compares with a bit under 10 inches for the iPad. Apple's mini iPad could be announced next week, and it is expected to have a sub-8-inch screen. Amazon will also soon release the Kindle Fire HD, HD indicating high definition, and it will have two Wi-Fi channels. The extra channel will make data transfer faster, And of course, Amazon hopes that buyers will use it to view Amazon's streaming movies, which require a high data transfer rate. The HD will have 16 gigabytes of storage built in. That's the same as the iPad. Yet another model can connect to the 4G cellular networks. It comes with 32 gigabytes of memory and a screen that's nearly 9 inches across. This model will cost you 500 bucks and requires an annual data plan for 50 bucks. And the old Kindle isn't quite dead, but it's called a paper white. Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos says the whites are whiter and the blacks are blacker. Unlike the old Kindle, the paperwhite also has a light source. The price? Plan to be 120 bucks. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill lynn and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.